Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which prods at the texture of the latest food books. This week I am with Saleha Mahmoud Ahmed, Master Chef winner and author of Khazana, the history of the Mughal Empire, but whose day job as a gastroenterologist has inspired her latest book, Foodology, a food lover's guide to digestive health. Beans, beans, the musical fruit. The more you eat, the more you toot. The more you toot, the better you feel. So eat your beans at every meal. And uh, that was the way of getting out of, of, of farting in public as a child. I asked her how she managed to bring her fascination with competitive telly, expertise in Mughal food history and the working of the gut together. I think I've got sort of multiple alter egos that people don't realise because every time I'm in a particular personality, I'm so immersed by it. Um, yeah, I love the Mughals. I will never stop loving the Mughals and Indo-Persian heritage is a big part of me but I suppose being a doctor um, a scientist is also a huge part of me and the chef part of me feeds into that gastroenterology side in quite a massive way Um, and it was something that I hadn't I'd always thought about I'd always discussed with my publisher I discussed with you know my agent my family etc but we'd never quite made the delve into the combination of food and science, um, cookery and gastroenterology, even though it was existing and, you know, it was part of my life on a day-to-day basis. Um, So, yeah, I think it does to people from the outside seem like a rather bizarre turn. Um, If I told you, Jilly, that I could do another five turns, you'd have to believe me, honestly, because... (laughs) Of course, because you are a human being. And of course, why should you be pigeonholed? That kind of reductive uh, mentality anyway is really what we're talking about here Mm. in terms of what we eat. It's linked to the way we live. Can you paint a picture for me of the human gut, what it needs, what it's not getting and and, uh, situate that in how we live our lives at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, we have to establish that the gut is a very important bit of kit and it's often not given the credence that it deserves you form your gut very very early on while you're in the uterus and you form bottom upwards towards your mouth not mouth downwards towards your bottom as we often think of the gut in our day-to-day lives um the gut uh, develops from birth onwards in terms of its bacterial composition um, and microbial composition, not just bacteria. Lots of other bits and pieces live in there as well. And when you, a child passes through its mother's vagina, it gets lots of bugs. So from the very moment you are born, you are colonised by bugs. Your gut is colonised by bugs, um, which is quite an amazing thing. And that gut um, bug and human relationship is one that stays with you forever And it is one that people have not really realised very much about, um, which is interesting because um, it is so, so important. And only now is the science catching up and telling us that so much of our wider health is to do with the composition of the gut bugs that we foster. And not only that, there are ways that you can eat to try and maximise that diversity of your gut bugs and therefore actually live a much health, healthier and happier life. And that's the sort of argument I'm making in foodology. Um, you know, from the instant, from the first instance, people may think, oh, that sounds ridiculous. That's very overstated. 
But it's absolutely not when you're actually a scientist and you look at the literature. Um, this is not an overstatement. This is really reality. Yeah, I mean, it is a microcosm of how we have lost our way in the world. I think it's totally linked with how we're ruining the planet as well. Um, you know, you say that research shows that people who exist on a westernised diet can lose up to a third of their microbial diversity. Now, that means Mm. we're just not eating enough of the right foods. You say that Mm 15,000 years ago, people would eat more than 150 ingredients per week, whereas Mm. now we eat fewer than 20. I mean, Mm. you know, obviously the answer is just industrialisation. But Mm. you tell us how we can redress that balance, don't we? And why it's so Mm. important. Well, I think the reason why it's so important is because your relationship with food is probably one of the most important relationships in your life um, because you are faced with that relationship and its impact on you on a daily basis multiple times, three to five times at least, you know, if you're having three meals a day plus two snacks. So having a healthy relationship with food that is beneficial to you is actually really, really important. Um, And we don't often take a step back and think of our eating as a a relationship at all, do we? We just think of our food and eating as just something that we do. It's part of our life. You know, yes, okay. you know, there's some of us who might be more interested in it than others and so forth. But actually, we don't really view it as a relationship. And taking a step back and analysing what you eat is quite important. Now, I've never, ever said to anybody, completely change everything that you're eating. Stop what you're eating right now. This is all complete rubbish. I take a much more holistic approach. I say, well, look, the westernised diet, the food that we eat is delicious for a reason. It's designed to be delicious and Moorish. And as humans, we are attracted to it. However, there is also ways of increasing the diversity of what you eat in your diet in a very nutritious, delicious way. So, you know, falling in love with amazing plants and plant-based dishes and, um, you know, uh, rediscovering how you can use nuts and seeds in your cookery and, um, you know, slow-releasing carbohydrates, grains, um, you know, experimenting with sourdoughs. And it is actually about eating more Mm. variety, isn't it? It isn't just about eating um, more fruit and vegetables. They come into it as you expand your diet. If you are just eating a very small junky kind of Mm. uh, diet you are very much limiting um, your ability to excite and stimulate your gut I mean that's what I love about it it's about funking it up putting some live stuff in there and getting it all excited and you know you do talk about the the gut as a second brain as a lot of Mm. people do but before we go there I really want to talk about the sharp end you as a doctor you as a gastroenterologist you see the Mm. sharp end you see what goes wrong when people really don't have and you see a a good diet and you see a lot of Mm. kids as well tell me the kind of stories that come into your clinic well i mean uh you know, when I get people in my clinic, they have often have digestive ailments which have troubled them for such a long period of time. They've already been to their GP, they've tried to find answers themselves, they can't. Um, some of them have true identifiable digestive disorders, um, which often have a very close and intertwined relationship with food. Um, others have digestive symptoms where we can't find any particular cause for them. 
Many of them are struggling with body image issues. Um, they either feel too thin or too fat. Um, they are struggling with finding the right type of food, um, the time to cook food, the skill to, to actually cook food. They um, don't understand the various food options that are available to them. They get stuck in patterns of eating, which become extremely narrow because they feel only a handful of things agree with them. So, you know, I've met people who can only have one particular brand of tomato sauce and one type of pasta, for example, and that is what they eat four to five times a week um, for lunch and dinner. And actually breaking those people out of that cycle. And I, it's not just me who does that. It's my dietetics colleagues as well. It's really difficult. But actually, when you do, you do see that the dietary change is what actually brings people the most benefit. I'm not saying that they shouldn't take our conventional medical treatments, because clearly that's very important. And, a, and a, an important adjunct to that is the food that you eat. Um, and actually, I think people are so interested in food that they can and what they can eat and what they can do themselves that makes a difference you know oh doctor does turmeric make a difference is it really true that i should be eating a bit more sauerkraut and kimchi should i really be trying that kombucha stuff what is that is that rubbish does it taste nice i mean they are really interested and the trouble is that yes i'm a gastroenterologist that's uninterested in food and i'm you know my second i have a second career as a chef but most of my colleagues aren't they're interested in food, they eat well, but they're not really trained to have conversations about food. And actually, they hesitate incredibly in doing so. So, I mean, I've sat in consultations when I was a bit more junior and listened to my doctor colleagues um, basically change the conversation round. So somebody would be talking about what food they need to eat to try and make themselves feel better. And they'd turn the conversation around. So have you been taking your friend this month? You know, and you, you, it was so obvious, you know, that they were out of their depth and you'd ask them about it and yeah. they say well that's just not our remit that's not what we're trained to do yeah. that's not that's not part of a gastroenterologist job but my argument is that it absolutely is part of your job because that's what your patient's interested in so it was it was actually that um that lack of understanding that food plays such an important part in our lives that actually led me to have the impetus to write foodology um and actually even give it to my yeah. colleagues and say look you know what do you think of this you know do you think this will ever change your practice even a little bit um yeah. I hope because it it's true you don't as a medical student you don't actually currently learn anything about nutrition do you i know there's a big movement by doctors to bring this in to, to put the pressure on people to to actually change that system because it is mm. so fundamentally linked but it's quite extraordinary isn't it that medical students are not taught about food they a lot are of them can't actually cook yeah, they, they aren't taught about food. Um, historically, they really weren't taught anything about food. Things are starting to change. There's um, uh, an inst- sort of uh, organisation that's come about called Nutritank, um, uh, which is led by a doctor called Ali Jaffe and other other colleagues. And they mm-hmm. are trying very hard to basically um, b- make nutrition a bigger part of the syllabus. And even then, what we find is that there is a much larger focus on nutrition from the point of view of a general practitioner so your local gps you know doing health and well-being lifestyle advice which of course is absolutely necessary but filtering the message down to secondary and tertiary care facilities like the one i work in um is even harder yet that is actually where we see the patients who have the highest needs the other thing that doctors are not taught about are spices the medicinal nature of spices now Mm. 
you as a you know somebody who has been using spices all your life mm. you know the nutritional value of them you know the medicinal value of those can you talk to fellow doctors about that or does it have to be so research-based that uh you know you need some backup I definitely need backup. Um, I mean, there are certain spices which are now emerging um, because the research is supporting their use. The classic one being turmeric, which we've known about the anti-inflammatory properties of for you know centuries and centuries, millennia even perhaps. Um, but it is now now the research is supporting the use of turmeric, particularly in some inflammatory conditions like inflammatory bowel disease. Um, so that's Crohn's and, and ulcerative colitis as a substitute, but as an adjunct to treatment. Um, we also know that cinnamon has a um, has a role in um, diabetes reduction. Um, so, so really, the science is catching up. But the problem is, food is really difficult to research in the conventional way, because what you can't do is you can't put people in two groups and say, well, this is my turmeric group and this is my non-turmeric group or this is my cinnamon group and that's my non-cinnamon group because you can't really food is such a confounder you can't control for everything else that people are eating you can't control for what they have eaten in the past and you can't control what they will eat in the future so actually conducting the science experiment that's really beautiful and proves that a spice has medicinal value and therefore should be used is incredibly incredibly difficult Um, much harder than a drug um so uh that is where the challenge with using spices lies i say difficult but certainly not impossible um and i i certainly think that there's a role i mean we even use chili like capsaicin um in patches now to help people with chronic pain related problems in various joints etc and they get patches with capsaicin on them and it takes the edge away for the pain that they're feeling so we're certainly you know borrowing lots of things from food the, the discipline of food of food um in our conventional day-to-day medicine but really there's a lot of untapped potential that we've not really extracted because we haven't conducted large-based trials on these things i i spoke to um Uh, Professor Tim Spector about this he was very kind um, and when I sent him a copy of my early book he he arranged a telephone call with me and he said um, you know I'm really glad that you talk about how medical students and doctors need to know more about it but you know makes me really angry you should be angrier (laughs) (laughs) no I interviewed Tim uh, back five years ago for the for the delicious uh, podcast way before he got involved in Covid and did some extraordinary stuff around Covid Um, and and he said then you know, liven up the gut, surprise it all the time. Every single meal should be like, mm. oh my goodness, what's this? Oh, mm. okay, get ready, get active. Mm. You know, see the gut as you describe it, as this very active participant in your body. This mm. this thing that's kind of been a bit sleepy, a bit lazy, is like, whoa, what's this coming at me? Oh, great, I can play with this, I can do something with this. Whoa, what's mm. that happening? Mm. And you do that in foodology, and I love that. It's very funny, and it's very lively and it paints pictures and it could make people feel a little bit like it's a wake-up call you know oh Mm. my god I feel quite sad that there's this whole huge part of my body that I've Mm. kind of ignored and that Mm. I haven't invited to the party 
it's alive. It is alive. We just don't know it, you know, because you don't, it's, it's very different when you have something moving, a heart beating, a, um, you know, eyes going round, being able to see things, a nose that can smell things, a tongue that can taste things. Um, but when you, whenever you have a part of your body that's a silent participant in activity, um, you don't really give it as much of the value as it deserves. Exactly. I would love to see that approach in the secondary school classroom you know because this I think is where it really matters isn't it I talked a lot to Mm. children and teenagers as part of my work for the food foundation about what do we need to change the food system and part of a huge part of that is more confidence in cookery classes at school proper cookery classes for a start Mm. what would you as a doctor say to cookery teachers in school that really needs to Mm. happen I think enthusiasm is really important. Um, I I actually um, went to my son's school a a couple of years ago and he was in kindergarten at the school then. And I said to them, you know, would you like me to do a cookery class with the children? And they said, oh, my God, we would absolutely love it. The kids would be delighted. Would you come in? And we made two types of scones. We made salty cheese scones and we made sweet scones with raisins in them. And this little exercise was essentially there to teach the difference between salty and sweet to children from a really young age. And they really engaged with the exercise. They were so excited by it. Not just is cooking and eating very sensory and something which excites children and something they can learn from. But actually, it got me thinking, the components of taste and flavour need to be taught from a very young age. You know, how um, salty and sweet are sensed by different receptors, how we have bitter receptors, we have sour receptors, how, um, you know, um, why is it that you love sweet things so much? You know, what what is it that makes us as human beings love sugar? I mean, it's all right doing... PSEs about healthy eating, you know, yes, eat your vegetables, eat your, your, your peas, eat your sprouts. But if a kid doesn't like sprouts, yeah. it's not going to change them. Exactly. You know, they, they, they're too, um, the, the children are, are very straightforward. And, and if they don't like a food, you know, they won't eat it. So the way isn't to say this is what healthy eating constitutes, eat more fruit and veg, which is the message that most kids get these days. The idea is to say, Mm, peas look at these peas we can actually pod them let's have a go at podding them together oh do you know peas are good for you have you tried them without cooking them first have you tried how sweet they taste oh my god just have a look at how sweet that pea is oh okay let's get a stick blender and make a pea soup that all of the kids can have for lunch together oh look it tastes and look like snot you know <laughs> that's the kind of thing um that gets kids really excited about food well, exactly. um yeah, so I think the enthusiasm and, um, and and just taking a step back and saying, yes, okay, we can teach kids what healthy eating is, but can we really get them interested in healthy food? That, and those are two very separate, distinct Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Start early. The Edible Schoolyard, Alice Waters has been talking about this for years and years and years. Jamie Oliver's tried it here. I mean, it's a stop-start system in this country. It drives me crazy. And I'm not sure I really understand why. It stops. Why the interest stops? You know, you could in secondary education, you could have all that stuff about the gut in biology, couldn't you? Bring Mm. it through food. You could learn about uh, you could learn languages through food. I I just don't get it. Anyway, that's Mm. that's one of my hobby horses. Let's start to talk Mm. about your food moments. Tell us a little bit about 
your childhood now you grew up here but you used to go back to Pakistan every summer to see your grandmother and one of the lovely food moments in your book is Sharif's Kima spaghetti now why did you Mm. choose this one well do you know what I think it started off as um a little bit of a, a joke because I Sharif um, was a khansama at my grandmother's house. And for those who don't know, a khansama is basically a cook that lives with you. So his family essentially lived with us and he was the cook. His wife helped around the house. We raised, my grandmother raised their kids and sent them to school and university, etc. It was a lovely, like, symbiotic relationship that existed. It was lovely. Um, Sharif was quite a character. Um He, the kitchen was his space. It was organised in a very idiosyncratic way. There was rattly bottles full of old potions and stuff everywhere. The whole kitchen was lined with pieces of um, old newspaper. Um, The cookers were old-fashioned gas, almost like camping stoves, you know. Um, There was an area out back where, um, you know, uh, he'd, he'd wash all the dishes with a hose pipe and clean them down. And it was just such a bizarre little kitchen you know like quite wonderful but quite bizarre and his kima spaghetti was really a specialty um the the thing is i mean pakistanis are not very good at cooking authentic italian food and i'm just going to put that out there they just don't know how to do it also they don't get it because they like spice and everything so um this is a bit of a bastardization of an italian dish which is spaghetti bolognese and i have no qualms in admitting that and i apologize to my italian counterparts but honestly I feel pasta can be applied to any culture. Yeah. Um, so um, he used to basically make kima, which is a spiced lamb, add loads of vegetables and then toss it through with these ribbons of spaghetti. And it smelled amazing. And he used to finish it off with little bits of potato chips that he'd fry off and then mix through it as well. And they'd be crunchy and he'd be eating it. And, you know, you'd have this like meaty, um, lovely, starchy goodness just going oh. through your mouth. And, you know, you'd end up with like the like almost like a layer of Vaseline over your lips which was essentially <laughs> lamb fat um, from the mints um, and I, I just love that memory and I love the fact that my grandma hated that I went into the kitchen because you know she was old school and for her it was taboo for young children to go into the kitchen because that was not my job it was a consumer's job and it was over 50 degrees in that kitchen and you know I had to save my complexion and it's just so old-fashioned when you think back at it you think save my complexion from what um but yeah those um, wonderful sort of food memories make all the difference though don't they, they? and do. I think that that's possibly what a lot of kids don't get um because there's so many so many people growing up without that kind of visceral experience of food and smell and heat and, and umami in the food and, and naughtiness and permission and all those issues, you know, that's what makes an interest in food start when you were eight years old when that happened, wasn't it? Yeah, you? yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't believe it sometimes. So my grandmother was so funny. I mean, we'd eat dinner, say Sharif made his spaghetti. So we'd have, you know, two platefuls of spaghetti and then, um, and then we'd have pudding and then half an hour later, she'd come at us with see these bananas and be like no no now you need to eat bananas we just had dinner and dessert now we have to eat a banana as well yeah 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 you have to eat a banana and my parents would go on holiday as in they would leave us and go to the far east for a few days um and with my grandma and my grandma would say weigh them before you before you go and weigh them when you come back 
Um, and it was her her life's mission to fatten us up in that week. Absolutely. And she did. She did. Yes. <laughs> Proof positive that she'd done her job. I mean, yeah. But it's interesting when you talk about Ramadan and hunger. I, I thought that was terribly interesting. You said no Muslim is ever ambivalent about food because very early on you are trained to fast for Ramadan. Mm. So you're trained as a child to curb your hunger pangs mm. in readiness for fasting. So mm. you, you know, Ramadan, as we know, is about fasting through the day and then you have elaborate meals every evening and you're thinking about food all day. Tell us about that training, the late breakfast at weekends, for example, and ideas that perhaps the rest of us can take into our lives to just to be aware of what hunger feels like and then to enjoy food more. Well, this whole thing about if I am hungry, or even a little bit hungry, I must eat quickly. I must fill myself up. Actually, hunger is tolerable um, for a period of time. I'm not saying starve yourself at all. I'm not saying miss meals. My point is this, though, that um, we have built up this um, image in our heads of hunger always being a negative, negative experience. Um, an actual fact, hunger prepares us for enjoyment of a delicious meal and is purely natural and physiological. And feeling hunger for a slightly prolonged period of time doesn't really do the body any massive harm, as in fasting, for example, in Ramadan. So what Ramadan sort of teaches you to do is able to work through cravings and hunger pangs and exercise self-control in the realm of food. Um, which is something which in this, you know, as we talk about this, you know, vast industrialization about around food and this vast ease of availability of food all around us, um, we don't really have to do because if we feel hungry, there's always a box of biscuits nearby. There's always a Costa coffee around the corner that we can grab something from. Um, and, you know, saving your hunger for that half an hour extra till you get home and then cook yourself a really nutritious good meal sometimes we don't have to do that because of the ease of availability of everything around us Mm. so what ramadan has taught me is to be able to control hunger pangs to be able to exercise self-control i can have a pack of jam donuts in front of me i'll eat one and really love it and enjoy it but i don't feel compelled to have the remainder the remaining four even if i'm hungry Mm. because i know that i have that ability to exercise self-control around my eating behaviors and that's not an easy thing to build and because of ramadan being a religious festival and the faith related connotations it has the faith essentially helps you do that in that context Um, And I think perhaps without that, it would be difficult. I know my friends who um, uh, exercise an element of fasting around Lent have very similar experiences that they've described. Some of the Jewish fasts as well around certain holidays, um, they also describe similar experiences as building up the ability to control and stave off cravings. So it, it has taught me a lot. Um, and I think take a step, taking a step back and saying, do I need to respond to this little bit of hunger right now? Um, and why is it that I just feel this absolute need to be full? Like, what security does that food give me? I will get food tonight. You know, I will get food in another hour. I can stay a little bit hungry for a little bit longer until I get it rather than binging on whatever's near me. Um, so that was sort of my take home message. Certainly not advocating starving, um, but yeah, it's a more subtle point than that. Your second food moment, the melon, mango and cucumber with a coriander and burnt garlic dressing is about 
taste. So a lot of us sort of think, oh, I don't like this food because I think it tastes horrible. And, you know, actually some of us, but the question is, why does that food taste horrible to you? And first of all, it can be that you've just not been exposed to that food enough. Many of us don't like sushi when we have it for the first time, but eventually start really enjoying it and becoming one of our top three or four food items. Um, so it's about whether you've been exposed to certain flavours and spices and certain taste compounds. Coriander is a really interesting one for me because people fall into a very black and white love or hate kind of conundrum with it. Um, I love coriander. I think it finishes a lot of my curries, my meals. I always, I literally always have some bruised, battered looking coriander lying in my fridge somewhere that needs to be used up. Um, and I, I find it, it's bucolic kind of appeal quite pleasant. But I know for a fact that there's people who literally feel it tastes like soap. And it's a purely visceral reaction that I've seen them have to the point where they feel like they're about to throw up when they eat it. Because to them, it's like literally having soap, like a dove bar of soap in their mouth. Um, and I, I had to look into this. And um, the science is so incredible. I mean, science is just such... Science is amazing. Um, science has given us an answer to this. And um, your love and hate of certain foods is almost certainly genetic. Um, so there are genes implicated in the love or actually genes implicated in the hate of coriander. Um, and those people who possess that gene will essentially find that it tastes all soapy and disgusting. So... Um, you know, unpicking these things, you know, you, know, you sit down and ask a, a teenager to have a chat with you about why might it be that X person likes chili and Y person doesn't. They'll brainstorm and they'll be able to come up with these things. They'll say, maybe they've not tried it when they were younger. Maybe they're from a different culture. Maybe, you know, they don't have a gene that makes them not like chili. But we actually have proven that fact. You know, these are not hypotheses anymore. Um, which is why I put that particular recipe in. It's amazing because it's a really delicious fruity combination and not only coriander garlic falls into the same love hate gene-based conundrum um, as do a bunch of other spices so um, you know I say the more food and genes research the better I would love to be in the future you know 20 years down the line able to do a genetic test which tells me which foods my body is designed to dislike how amazing would that be absolutely but are you able to get over those uh, dislikes then or are you saying that if you are genetically predisposed to disliking coriander you're just never mm. going to like it mm. well I think that's a million dollar question I argue that my recipe is good enough to fool people um, <laughs> because I have seen some of them fooled by it when I have hidden the coriander and they haven't quite realised that, that that's the main flavour because I've combined it with others which kind of hide the soapiness. So I argue that actually um, nurture can win over nature um, in certain dislikes for things. Um but I would certainly not criticise someone if they had a life without coriander because they just couldn't get over the soapy taste. Like I'm not advocating. Them, yeah, I do feel terribly <laughs> sorry for them. But at the same time, I mean, I'm not promoting some sort of narcissistic desire to, like, you know, be, make people <laughs> um, eat foods that they dislike. Um, I argue. I, th I actually do think that 70 percent, at least, of people can change their minds. On which point, your third food moment is cauliflower and cabbage a lot of people do not like the taste and they certainly don't like the effect a little later um you call this your prebiotic mm. tabbouleh tell us about the cruciferous mm. vegetables 
Well, I mean, we've talked today about, you know, bouncing around with those gut bugs and feeding them, making them a part of you, being happy that they exist inside you. And uh, uh, cruciferous vegetables like cauliflowers, cabbage, broccolis, etc. are the perfect chow for those bugs. Um, they are essentially act like miracle grow. So if you imagine your gut bugs as a garden and you want to basically fertilize that garden, then these uh, vegetables are perfect fertilizer because they have these amazing fibers within them, which um, your, your, your gut bugs love. Now, the byproduct of loving those um, those ingredients is obviously when the bacteria ferments and breaks down those fibers, it also produces a bit of wind. Um, but hey, you know, um, a little bit of wind did no, no one any major harm. Um, what goes in comes out. And quite often what we find that changes is the volume of gas that is produced as opposed to the offensiveness of the wind that is produced. So, you know, you essentially blow out loud and proud um, and not small and stinky, you know. <laughs> Um, you do talk a lot about wind in in, in the book yeah. and and it made me realize that actually you know we are terribly british aren't we about wind so british I mean, wind when and you're poo. in your clinic well exactly and um i i wrote a book about poo about 30 years ago called fibronetics and i too had the illustrations that you've got from the bristol study mm. of the different types of poo and it was remarkable it was one of those giveaways on the front of a new woman magazine and the guardian saturday and mm. everybody on the tube was reading that book studying these pictures of poo and mm. when you're talking in your clinic how easy is it to talk about poo i mean it is so hard um because i talk about poo incredibly freely um like without even flinching and i think that takes uh, my patients by surprise a bit because they sort of go "Mm," you know and i said no no it's fine i want you to tell me i want you you, do you really want to know i really want to know please tell me um so you know they are taken aback with how interested i am but actually i'm interested not just because I want to know about their poo, because actually it serves a function and um, knowing and understanding their stool is a massive important part of my job. Um, But people are really reluctant to talk about it and also they lack the tools to be able to, so they're just like, well... I don't know. Is it normal? What's normal? What does normal poo? What does normal poo look like? And of course, there isn't really a normal poo as such. You know, this whole notion of us opening our bowels once a day, um, you know, and having perfectly formed type four stool is basically a load of BS, unfortunately, because most of us aren't like that. Um, and you know, some of us are, but many of us aren't. And you can be lots of variations of normal. The key thing is whether you are different to usual yourself and noticing a change a change in the bowel habit is very important um and food and poo are intimately related um and people even sort of cringe when they think about poo and food in the same sentence i mean i do colonoscopy sometimes and i can actually see remnants of what people have been eating and the good eaters particularly i see the vegan eaters i often find various different fruit seeds and plant seeds and i can identify be like oh apple core did you have an apple yesterday oh y- yes i did oh what's that in there a bit of coriander you know you can actually see it in their colon um whereas you know the people who have low residue kind of diets 
um, purely on low residue diets, purely on things like chicken, potatoes, very little veg. Their colons are usually completely clean with no residue left in there whatsoever. Yeah. So prebiotics as opposed to probiotics. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the feeding. That's the miracle grow that you talk about. It's it's fertilising the garden. Stimulating it is the probiotic, isn't it? Yeah, so probiotics are um, contain live live bugs basically. So we're talking about our live yogurts, kefir, um, kombucha, um, things which have been fermented. Um, for example, um, you know your sauerkraut, your your fresh kimchi, that kind of thing. Um, so those actually contain bugs, and the idea is that they go inside you, and a small proportion of that bugs will go deep into the recesses of the gut. Um, now I had a very good question from a patient who was talking to me about you using probiotics. Um, Because in my book, I don't talk about probiotic supplements. I talk about probiotics from food sources, which are natural. And actually, the problem with supplements is that they work for some people, they don't work for others. And it's a completely different kettle of fish, and they contain different live things. So I often just say we'll stick to the probiotic foods. Um, So a, a patient of mine said, well, I'm sorry, but if your stomach is full of acid, how is any live bacteria and bugs actually going to get to the recesses of your colon? And uh, it took me a bit aback for a second. And then, you know, actually, yes, your stomach kills off a lot of the probiotic stuff that you take. But actually, um, you know, we get diarrhea and vomiting from food bugs, don't we? So your stomach's good, but it's not a hundred percent so some of that live bacteria will still go down into your small bowel through the small bowel down into the large bowel and the large bowel is really where the magic happens um so yeah your stomach can't get rid of all of the probiotic content in the food that you're eating although it does get rid of the majority of it you don't need a large amount you need you know a few little microbial um communities to go down there and they can populate and become very vast inside as well What's about the toot bean salad? Well, the toot toot bean salad um, is, again, a bit of a joke um, because, you know, I remember being on in the playground when I was younger and used to say beans, beans, the musical fruit. So if anybody let out a fart on the playground, it would be beans, beans, did you have beans for dinner last night? Beans, beans, the musical fruit. The more you eat, the more you toot. The more you toot, the better you feel. So eat your beans at every meal. And uh, that was the way of getting out of of, of farting in public as a child. And um, I sort of told my kids this right to try and get them interested in pulses as well and um, they are interested in them but this is a little um, toot bean salad is a very simple recipe which basically uses standard store cupboard ingredients um, some basic fruit and veg that you've got lying in your fridge and some canned canned beans which you then just wash through and honestly I mean it's really quite delicious. Um, I always have some in my fridge. It goes along with it. lasts incredibly well in the fridge as well because, you know, the lentils don't go off or soggy. They, they act as a great sponge for flavour. Um, and I, I just, I know it's not like high fashion cooking. There's nothing, you know, Ottolenghi-esque about it. It's just a bean salad. But, you know, sometimes that is just how you want to eat. And it it isn't a, a a big deal this change in your diet, is it? But actually, all the things that you're talking about, you know, kimchi and the sauerkraut, for example, you can absolutely make yourself with leftover vegetables, mm. really, really simply, mm-hmm. and it doesn't cost a thing. You're mm-hmm. not saying to people to go out and necessarily buy kefir at two pounds thirty a pop, and it's incredibly easy and terribly quick to have an effect. Yes. 
it's very quick to have an effect. I mean, I've, what I would say is if you have been taking a very highly processed diet for a long time, A, you will notice the changes very quickly, but quite often you will notice that you get very bloated as well as your gut starts adapting. This is usually a temporary phenomenon. And if it's not causing you pain or discomfort is absolutely fine. If it is taking you a little bit longer, all you need to do is still continue to introduce those extra things into your diet, but do it a little bit more slowly and gradually build it up so that the bloating isn't as big a Mm. problem. I think from people who I've seen who have started eating um, a more diverse diet filled with more plants, more whole grains, nuts, seeds, more of the good stuff. I think within a month, they are saying that they are seeing effects. People comment on their skin. They comment on their energy levels. And as a byproduct of what they're eating, their weight will go down as well. That that is something that you do see. Um, so, you know, the uh, and this is not just something that has a short term benefit. I mean, long term in things you can't see, like your cardiovascular health, um, like your predisposition to diabetes going down, like depression, mood really, really lifting because, you know, we know that depression is an inflammatory state. Um, these are all things that can very much be addressed through um, eating this type of diet. And you're right, Julie, it's not expensive. It's a change, though. Um, You know, I talk about, you know, I have two kids. Um, My husband and I are NHS doctors. We have a mortgage, um, you know, bills and all the rest of things that come with life. So we have to do it in a very normal, cost-effective way as well. And the way to do that is, you know, a strong reliance on the tinned items in my cupboard, which I do have. I always have lentils, I always have chickpeas and I have a whole variety of them because they're very cheap and really filling um, and I'm going to do my, my gut good. I have a freezer full of frozen vegetables of every description. I go to the Middle Eastern shops, find all the odd vegetables that, you know, um, are not easy to buy otherwise. And again, they are highly cost effective. Um, I sometimes get odd box deliveries if I can afford it. If I can't, I don't mm-hmm. get those. I go to farmers markets, I u- pick up the bruised vegetables Even when Asda has a sale and they put all of the sort of slightly bruised looking fruit on one side, I will be filling up my trolley full of it. I don't want to be a food prude. Um, Yes, I like eating well. Yes, I have the chef credentials, but I'm not. I I am a realist. I'm not living on some cloud. um, And I know that people need to eat um, on a budget. Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my news. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week when I'm with Dan Saladino, co-presenter of Radio 4's The Food Programme and now author of one of the biggest think books of the year, Eating to Extinction. 